0: Hello, this is Paul Robinson. Welcome to the East London Radio Private Lives Podcast. I'm delighted to welcome two wonderful musical guests. In the second half of the pod, we'll chat with actress, TV presenter and musician Toya, the last punk to get signed. But first, Osabisa, the most successful African heritage band in the UK, who've recorded more than a dozen albums and had chart hits with Dance the Body Music and Sunshine Day. They've got a brilliant new album out called New Dawn. But, as I put it, to Robert Bailey, who plays keyboards, and Greg Kofi Brown, guitarist and vocalist, it's been quite a wait.
1: I think the last album was called Oce, and that was the last studio album. And that was done in 2009. And um, that was um, produced by Teddy Jose. And um, yeah, that was our last studio album. So what can we expect on the new album? Oh, wow. Um, well, we've got some very... Um, I, I think we got some very strong sort of single material, but then there's some amazing eclectic sort of material as well. Um, we, we have some amazing um, compositions by, by Robert Bailey uh, here, who is the original... Um, Keyboard player and, and arranger for Osibisa, and um, we have an amazing song by uh, Ola Onabule, uh, who's a Nigerian composer. And um, you know, I've written the sort of the <laughs> the kind of radio-friendly commercial stuff, you know, but but Rob, Robert's written all the serious. Uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, compositions.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And and Robert, you're smiling, so you're not that serious, but you're, you're really the the link to the past too, aren't you? Because you bring the history and the heritage of OCB to the new album. Yeah,
2: Yeah, when we started, there was a sort of, uh, an atmosphere and the band members were all, it was just, there was no real form. Everyone just added their bit. And from that, we created the sound. So it wasn't very strict, you know. And it gradually, the more we played together and the more we performed, it became apparent that it was working, you know. Um, and it was a very, it was a very spiritual feeling experience, that the audience picked up on, and we it it got quite strong when we played, you know.
0: How did you feel as a band being back together, recording new stuff? It must have been like a a big family reunion.
2: Well, in essence, yeah, it was. Um, the thing about this last album was we started it on computers which was quite a challenge because obviously once you have something on computer it doesn't sound like a live performance so we had to sort of transfer that and, and create a sound in the studio which took a bit of while and, and, and it's quite an a, a experience, you know. But eventually I think it came out that it does sound like a band playing now, you know. So that was the main thing about it. And as Greg said, we had a, a variety of different styles of music, which Osibisa had anyway in the beginning. You know, you're we doing like funk, then it was African, just mixed up everything mixed up. Caribbean. The Caribbean influence with the three guys in the band from the Caribbean, and then Af- uh, Nigerian. So it was a strong, it was a strong...
1: That was part uh, of the
0: joy of it though, wasn't it? You had so many different, different styles, people that come from different parts of the world and all that somehow came together in this amazing sound which was, you know, very successful. I mean, in the mid-70s, you had some big hits. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, There there was that Pan-African thing that was was kind of happening in the 70s, you know. um, uh, Robert's from Trinidad... uh, Dale Richardson was from Antigua. Uh, Spartacus. Spartacus are the bass players from Grenada, which again Grenada has uh, had a really uh, heavy tradition with the drum, with the African drum, and of course uh, um, Teddy uh, Teddy Osei, Mac Tonto, Salomafio was from Ghana, and um, um, Lofty Amaro, Amaro was from. Um, Uh, Nigeria so you had a myriad of you know rhythms and styles you know it's like being at a market
0: (laughs) (laughs) brilliant brilliant I remember seeing you guys on top of the pops and thinking oh my goodness it's like a party (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah. let's go back to the origins you're talking about the the different uh sources of all the musicians that came together to be Osebisa how do you bring all that together as a coherent sound
2: I met Wendell, who was a guitar player on Denmark Street, which was like Tin Pan Alley at the time. <laughs> and I always say it's, it's amazing how if you don't talk to people or, or get to know people, you might miss an opportunity. And that was one time when I just decided I'll, have, I'll, you know, talk with him and see what he's doing. You know, he had quite a nice vibe, you know, <laughs> and everything. So eventually um, I met all his circle of friends which I, shall I say again, yeah, uh, yeah. Conrad, yeah, Isidore. Conrad Isidore, yeah. um, Fuzzy Samuels, um, and quite a few other, and all of these guys who I met in the local scene, Wendell sort of connected me with them, and they all ultimately ended up playing with some top artists, you know, and, but what happened with Sibusa, Dell said, oh, he's wor- working with a, a group of guys who want to put a band together, so I went to Finchley Park with him met Teddy, Saul and Mac and it, it was like in a bedroom <laughs> and sort of discussing how we're going to form the band and rehearsing songs in the bedroom. <laughs> but after we started doing rehearsals, I thought well this is very much like what I grew up in, my influences in Trinidad. We used to listen to a lot of music from South America, jazz, all that was on the radio and this sort of, the music was Sibiza they were doing Combine all these elements, and that was what attracted me. And for the first year, I mean, my dad had got me a Hammond organ, you know, which is a very expensive. So your
0: dad was clearly supporting your future career then, very nicely. His dad was an
1: Olympic athlete. Oh,
2: was he? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, tell me more. (laughs) Um, He ran for Britain in um, the nineteen forty-eight and fifty-two Olympics. Your dad's name was MacDonald Bailey.
0: Fantastic! Oh Mm. well, and he was quite. Thank thank you, sir, for doing so well for Britain.
2: And he was, quite, he was quite a star in, in um, England. You didn't
0: fancy going to athletics. I'm glad you didn't, well, but you didn't fancy... when it. I was
2: younger at school, I was yeah. very good at gymnastics right. and athletics. But when I started, when I went back to Trinidad, because I went to school in London, went back to Trinidad, mm. and there were no facilities, so I, so I sort of took up... Well, thank
0: goodness for that. We'd have <laughs> lost you, wouldn't we?
2: <laughs> <laughs> and I, even, though, even when I was young going to school in England, in London, I love music. I on the on the TV. I listen to all the, the music, internet music, because uh, the TV was on all, all day long. So they play a lot of music. I used to love the music on there. So the music was there. And when I went to Trinidad, I gradually got into music, and yeah, it became the love of my
1: life. You know.
0: And how did Osbiter get signed and get started? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I mean, the, the the stories I've heard, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Robert. Um, It's like when Robert and Wendell got together with Teddy and Mac and Saul, um, and they started rehearsing. Actually, uh, Dale Dale Richardson, the guitarist, and Fuzzy Samuels, the bass player, and Conrad Isidore, they had a band called the Sunday Times. And they were the rhythm section for Eddie Grant. Eddie Grant of the Equals. So a lot of the Equals records, Uh, those guys would have been playing the rhythm section. Wow! You know, uh, Fuzzy Samuels, Conrad Isidore, and Dale Richardson. And um, I know this because uh, Fuzzy Samuels is one of my mentors. I met him in L.A. in the 70s, and he was married to P.P. Arnold. Oh! And they used to sponsor a lot of us young musicians and invite us to their house in Malibu, which used to be owned by Bob Dylan. And now there's we, so many names in there, my <laughs> yeah, goodness yeah, it's yeah, a Rock yeah. and Roll
0: Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: So all these amazing musicians would meet in Malibu, young black musicians, white musicians, whatever. We would meet and uh, jam with each other. But anyway, so um, uh, when he mentioned about Dell, well, Conrad Isidore was a famous drummer. I knew about these guys before I ever, ever came here. Conrad had played with Joe Cocker. He played with Vinegar Joe. Um, which was a band with Robert Palmer and Colby yes. Brooks. And, 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 uh, and uh, Fuzzy Samuels uh, ended up playing bass with Stephen Stills. As a matter of fact, Fuzzy and Conrad were the original ryth- rhythm section for, for Stephen Stills' solo album. You know, And Fuzzy would go on to play with uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash. And, and he kind of got into that California soft rock, kind of country rock kind of vibe. But he was an amazing bass player. And, um, but these are the kind of guys that can I mean, that, that Robert went, grew up, you know, playing with, you know, and, and Robert was telling me, oh, Fuzzy used to come around and sleep at our house.
2: Yeah. He was homeless <laughs> at the time. That's <laughs> a celebrity
1: sleepover, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So, um, it's, 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 like I said, I've, I've done a, I've done a kind of a film about it and hopefully it'll come out, but you know, I mean, it's incredible, like the the musicians that these guys were part of this scene, you know, uh, Robert's brother Richard Bailey played with Jeff Beck. Oh you no, know? wow. he was a drummer on Blow by Blow. By Blow, by Blow, by Blow. You know, Which is a well, classic album. Snare, yes, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the yeah. snare that he used from that from that session is on three songs on our, at least f- no four songs on our album. You know, so you oh, know, yes. yeah, he brought his. Glasses. He brought because he because he had said he hadn't used it. He left it in Trinidad. And he, only he left it in Trinidad. Yeah, and he only recently brought it back and had it serviced and he used that snare on our album, on our current album. Wow. I, you know, so <laughs> actually Richard Richard Bailey's playing on our album as well. Mm. You know, he's playing on four songs. So we got Richard Bailey, the Bailey brothers, you know. Star-studded. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> star-studded. So I mean, this is all part of the black musical community that was happening back then. Like you you mentioned uh Conrad Isidore. Well, Conrad was the older brother of Reggie Isidore who was another drummer who played with Peter Green and and, and um, uh, the guy from Procore the guitarist, um, uh, Robin Trower. Uh, Robin Trower? Yeah, Rob. if you look at the two first Robin Trower albums, the classic you got Reggie is Who's currently working songs. with Maxi priest. I didn't know that. Yeah. They're
0: doing well, an album together. Yes. That's I, weird. Yeah. I, we, that Ma- is weird. Yeah. Maxi priest was uh, a guest from Jamaica only a few weeks ago and Robin Trower is working with him. They're coming over to the UK next year to play together. Robin Trower and Maxi priest. Isn't that great?
1: Well, it's funny because you know, when I met Rich, he, he had just gotten thrown out of Robin Trower after doing two, two three albums. And we played together in L.A. quite a bit. And it was Reggie and his brother Gus Isidore who ended up playing guitar and writing Seal's first album. So the Isidore brothers are part of that. It's like part of that black British musical dynasty like like Robert and Richard is, you know. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gus Isidore, Seal, and so many other artists. Uh, Reggie Isidore, Conrad Isidore. So that's part of that 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 scene. So um, all this was kind of homogenous. Uh, Robert getting together with Dell and Teddy Osei. And it, it morphed into something that a lot of the current British bands were using. I mean, you look on the the Rolling Stones Brown Sugar album, and you will see a lot of uh, African musicians and West Indian musicians on that album. Um if you look at the Rolling Stones at High Park in nineteen sixty nine, you'll see on the side of the stage these African drummers, you know, um Gentle Johnson's <coughs> African drummers. And within the African drummers there'll be you'll see some of the guys who play with Osibisa, you'll see um Lofty, uh, you see uh, uh, Lord Eric Remy Kabaka. Remy Kabaka, you know, all these guys that were part of that scene. I mean Remy Kabaka again he was he was there at the beginning of Osibisa as well. He could have, you know. And, and Remy he Kabaka was,
2: Remy Kabaka just to mention, sorry but he, Remy yeah. Kabaka was a very important inspiration yeah. for the back. He had a, a sort of attitude like
1: yeah, we can
2: do it. You know, that sort of attitude, very positive. Soon. And everything was yeah, man, that's great. and he was the one who took us out to Steve Winwood's house, he knew the Rolling Stones, he was that
1: kind of person. <laughs> all these guys, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Paul McCartney, mm-hmm. uh, uh, they all worship Remy Kabaka. Yeah. I saw a picture of Remy Kabaka jamming with, um, there's a guy from Moonlight, the actor. Um, Bruce
3: uh, Willis. Br-
1: Bruce Willis, jamming with Bruce Willis. I mean he knows, he lives in LA now. And it's like, there's a story a friend of mine just told me recently that he, uh, uh, Remy took him to see Paul McCartney. And wings, and uh, you know, Paul sees Remy backstage and brings him onto the stage. And says, "Remy, Remy, you know." And then they're backstage, and uh, Remy looks at Paul McCartney and says, "You know, Paul, you must play, must more more Beatles. You must play." And said, "Oh, you think so, Paul? You think so, Remy? Mm-hmm. You know?" And he's like, you know, it's like. You know, Remy's like his big uncle you oh, know? <laughs> you know?
0: I, I love this musical fusion, it's, it's absolutely brilliant, we're going to play some music yeah, uh, yeah, and we'll come back, so I don't want to lose all these stories, yeah. but let's fast forward to your first huge hit in 1975, Sunshine Day, top 20, everybody knows this record
2: well, I, at that time, by then I had left the band, so I wasn't part of the Sunshine Day but, um, so I can't really talk about that particular song, you know. but I think gradually when we started the band was very album oriented and bit by bit, I think well, we did have a minor hit with um, Music for Gong Gong, which is an instrumental hit. Which was the, first, was the first, first, single, first single, 1971, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was fairly successful, so the, the sort of the idea was we should maybe try and get some more singles and what happened was I found that it was becoming too commercial. In other words and everyone was sort of trying oh, so to you leave.
0: left it's too commercial
2: that was one of the reasons no i left because a couple of the other guys had already decided to leave okay. and i i said to myself well w- you know once it started getting that was around the time when the other guys Spartacus left. Spartacus had left as well sparticles yeah. i met him in la they all know? started wanting to do their solo projects you know which i thought was you know <laughs> a bit ridiculous <laughs> i mean always happens though, yeah. doesn't it <laughs> premature you know i thought it was like well the band is just starting to happen and now everyone is sort of getting into themselves yeah yeah. and originally what made the band powerful was the spirit of everyone
1: united together so that
2: to me spoiled the band and i said well i i wanted to sort of improve learn some new skills i love arranging i wanted to learn get some piano technique you know improve all of that and that's how i decided to leave so i wasn't around at sunshine day
1: well, I mean, I think, uh, uh, from what I heard, the story was Sunshine Day was meant to be a B-side anyway. Was it?
2: Yeah. I didn't
0: know and, that. And that's mm-hmm.
1: what happens to a lot of hits that were recorded as B-sides. And they were done with such innocence and frivolity that it stuck and it, it became a hit, you know? And when I, when I joined Osa again in 82, I joined as a, well, I, was, I went to a session. Uh, somebody saw me playing with Peter Green. And they recommended me for a session to do with Osibisa because I I had this kind of slap in style and they wanted this kind of funk vibe on it on the record. So I went in, but I was more interested in the roots African side of what they were doing. And um, Teddy asked me to join the band. And I was I was doing quite well as a session bass player at the time and songwriter. And I just thought, well, Teddy, I'm quite busy. If you really want me, you're going to have to put me on a salary. And and he said, okay. So he put me on a salary. I was like, yeah, okay, that's cool. Nice monthly paycheck. Always nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, but again, like what Robert was saying, they were chasing this mythical commercial hit. And I was... I was starting to get into pure African music at that time. And you remember the early eighties and there were all this music coming from Zaire and Congo and you know, uh, all this really beautiful African music being sung in French and different languages. And, and uh, I was learning more about this from another guy I was working with from a band called The Members, uh, Nick Tesco, because I did some sessions with them. And- uh, Sound of the Suburbs. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, I was working a lot with him actually. And, uh, but he was turning me on to all this, you know, uh, indigenous African music. And, and that's what I was interested in. And then eventually, Teddy and Mac, they started doing their traditional kind of high life music, which they brought into the picture in the beginning. Yes. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so eventually, they went back to that. They, they produced an album called High Life Stars. And I said, Teddy, this is brilliant. And I was, cause I, I, I got fed up, like, like Robert. Uh, you know, it, it's just, um, I got fed up, and although I was still connected with the band, I went out and started doing other recordings and projects as a. I even went into acting. You know, I, I, I did the Blues Brothers. I was in, uh, the. Buddy you were in Holland the Store. Blues Brothers stage
0: show? Yeah, the, wow. yeah.
1: Yeah, I was in the original Blues Brothers stage show, and uh, uh, Sean Connery was our. Bless his soul was our executive producer, and then from there I went into the, the um, Buddy Holly story. Before I came to London, I studied for two years acting in uh, musical comedy under a guy named uh, Ernie Glucksman, who who produced a couple of movies and was ma- manager of Jerry Lewis. So he produced the original um, Nutty Professor film and the Bell the Bellboy or Bellhop film. So he was my mentor, and I was supposed to be stay in L.A. and become an actor. But then Reggie Isidore and, and, and Gus Isidore got me a deal to come to England. They got me a management deal. So it was either stay in L.A. and do acting or come to Britain and do music, and I decided to come to Britain, obviously. So 10 years later, I get offered a part um, by um, a guy um, to play Jelly Roll Morton, the jazz pianist, at the Royal Court, and uh, you know, and and you know, at, by that time I'd already played and toured with Osibisa, so that opened up a whole new career for me to be acting. So for me, playing the Royal Court in London as Jelly Roll Morton, I I got offered a part in the Blues Brothers, and um, I didn't, you know. Uh, I I knew who the Blues Brothers were and and, you'd seen the movie presumably I'd seen the movie yeah yeah. but but what we did was really not based on the film it was loosely uh, you know they used some of the bits from the film but I mean it was mainly uh, based around London you know it was like the Blues Brothers must be the fun show to do that. it was great yeah it was great and my bit uh, one of the bits that I did uh, uh, you know I was like one of the soloists uh, we would call the bluettes And I used to sing uh, Midnight Hour, but dance, do a James Brown dancing routine. Mm -hmm. So I did the side shuffles and stuff. And and, uh, Kwame Kweama, who is now the artistic director of The Young Vic, he was in the show. And his solo piece was singing uh, Under the Boardwalk and I would do the bass part. Do, 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 do. you know, and, and that was, you know, and it was great, it was fantastic. I, I was the understudy for Jake Blues, and um, Kwame was the understudy for Elroy uh, L, L, L Blues. Uh, and um, I actually played Jake Blues about, uh, over a dozen times
0: fantastic experience thank goodness you're back in the band though (laughs) obviously the acting career was i I never left i mean even sometimes even
1: sometimes teddy would call me and say oh greg (laughs) can you do a show with us you know and i said well teddy you know and so i I remember there's been times i left the theater and maybe got on the train to go to Guilford to do a show with ocbisa or jumped in my car and drove somewhere to do a show (laughs) with ocb it's a rock and roll life isn't it it really
0: is
3: you're listening to podcast radio
2: as so
0: I you say, played the marquee successfully, which was, I guess was probably quite unusual because um, probably, there probably weren't very many African bands or, or no, black no, bands no, playing I mean, the marquee, whether uh, in those days.
2: No, uh, also, as, as I was saying from earlier on in the interview, that um, for the first year, the band we were doing gigs, no money. And I decided, why would I play? I Even had little gigs, I did, you know, um, like pub gigs on my own. But I stuck with the band because I thought this was something I felt was good, good. you know, I liked the music, so we continued. And Marquee was one of the gigs, so when we did the Marquee, I thought, well, we're kind of getting there.
1: (laughs) Greg, you remember those days, I guess, very well. Well, yeah, Yeah. I mean, I I wasn't around, obviously, for the uh, original Marquee gigs, Mm -hmm. but I certainly played the Marquee in the early 80s with the band. And, um, what was it and like?
0: I mean, you know, what was the atmosphere like in the early was, ex- 80s? Well? It, okay. was it was very exciting. It was very,
1: very, very exciting. You know, um, uh, there was, uh, Osobisa has got some amazing supporters. You know, this music is incredible. This music is very, it's conscious, but it's, it's good, good vibe, good feelings. I've seen racists, skinhead racists who didn't like black people after a Osobisa concert they said, "Look, man, I apologize," and they they would move to Africa or they would, you know, embrace African music, you know, and just because of the music, the power of the music, to make people reevaluate their 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 feelings to black people. And, so the music
0: know. changed their perceptions; all those biases went, and they actually apologized. That's so powerful. Yeah.
1: Mm. You know, I mean, you know, and it's it's happened more than one <coughs> time. You know, if it if it happened once, I could say whatever. But during the course of, I know certainly my being in the band, I've seen it happen on multiple occasions, and I'm sure Robert can yeah, definitely. You've seen the same thing, Robert.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, when we played at um, was it the L S London School of Design? Oh, yeah, that, that, was big gig. Gig. that was a famous game. That was a famous um, so game. A bunch of students, basically. Yeah. yeah. Well, we did all the u- universities, and at the same time. All the bands were on, on the same circuit, you know, um, King Crimson, um, Black Sabbath. I mean, we were in the dressing room. Black I mean, Sabbath. you are so different to
0: King Crimson and Black yes, Sabbath. Yeah. That's a, that's a range, that's Pink a ham turn, <laughs> isn't it? You know.
2: Yes, um, Genesis, and yeah. I think Genesis, yes. Yeah. I don't think it was yes. It was either Genesis before or after. But anyway, all those bands on the same circuit, so it was a really great experience.
1: But for some reason, I don't know why, but somehow Osibisa uh they, they, they transcended that, that racism, and they, they were one of the few black bands that was accepted on an international level.
0: One of the things that is an abiding memory for me, apart from hearing your records on the radio, was in the mid-70s seeing you on Top of the Pops. Mm. And uh, I do remember, you know, Dance the Body Music on Top of the Pops. And I think what that did was suddenly there's this band and there were lots of you on stage, brilliantly dressed, just having this amazing <laughs> time. Yeah. And I think that must have done a great deal for black and African music, because they were, with all these other acts, just sort of celebrating happiness and good times. And that to me is what Osibisa is, is largely about, you know, yes. making you feel good.
1: Yes, I think that is that is one of the elements that uh, has brought Osebisa a, a, a certainly uh, a sense of longevity in the music world because I've never seen anybody, if you know Ocibisa, you have smiling happy memories. You know, I never heard anybody say, oh, Ocibisa, blah, blah, blah. They all said Ocibisa, yeah, man, you know. It's always been a positive, uplifting a response to the band.
0: And New Dawn, their new album, is the first release on the new marquee record label, named after the famous Soho Club, that was home to many legendary artists, from Jimi Hendrix to the Rolling Stones.
3: Podcast Radio.
0: I first met my next guest in 1980, when she gained massive UK attention with her 4 from Toya EP, that included the much-played hit, It's a Mystery. In a career spanning five decades, she's had eight top 40 singles, released 20 albums, and expanded her work to include feature films, television presenting, and voiceovers. Her beginnings were not without struggle. Her drama assessor unkindly said she had a lisp and wasn't attractive. But undeterred, through a combination of talent and determination, Toya became very successful. So, Toya, it's great to see you again, more than 40 years later. Welcome to Podcast Radio. I mentioned your great versatility. How would you describe yourself?
3: I just like to work, and I've always felt that sticking to one thing has never, ever been enough for me. And I find, you know, people say I flit about like a a butterfly creatively. Well, actually, my best ideas for songwriting come up when I'm acting. Um, And when I'm songwriting, my best ideas for everything else come up as well. I find that just being creative is something that I would like to be mentally 360 degrees when I'm doing it, rather than being trapped in any one art form. At the moment, I'm doing actually quite a lot of physical art uh, which I never expected so that that for me when I'm sitting down with pen in hand and I'm doing line drawings, I'm coming up with lyrics so I've always found that just being creative leads to so many other things
0: it sounds like you're the ultimate multitasker you're doing some art and you're thinking of song lyrics at the same time
3: if you're on stage and you get a song idea you're you're stuffed because you can't leave the stage you can't distract the show and you've got this idea and you're crossing your fingers i always cross my fingers when i need to remember something and you say i've got to cross my fingers for an hour and a half um it's yeah there are very inconvenient times when ideas pop into your head
0: and you've got to try and remember them do you carry a notebook and sort of write things down furiously when you get a chance just so you don't lose the moment
3: i have notebooks everywhere i even take one to bed and in the dark, Uh, I write in the dark, uh, and it's very interesting trying to decipher what I was saying at four in the morning in the dark, when you look at the the handwriting. I'm very, I don't know if you've ever seen a comedy called League of Gentlemen, where there is a a woman in it called Pauline, who's obsessed with pens, Yes. and I'm sure that is just based on every writer in the world, because, If someone comes into the house and takes my pens uh i absolutely lose my temper i have on every surface pen and paper and that pen and paper is never to be touched and if someone new comes into the house they have to be told do not move or touch the pen and paper we are writers they're there that's there for a reason so i think anyone who writes will recognize The paranoia one suffers about a pen going missing.
0: Because then you can't capture your magic. And I mean, the good thing is, I guess, once you've written it down, you've then got permission to forget about it until you come back and develop it, haven't you?
3: That is exactly it. Once it's written down, you can get on with cooking and cleaning and everything else.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear you live a normal life as well, and that there is a bit of the cooking to go in, going on, the cleaning going on. Let's go right back to the very beginning. Your father was a joiner, and your mother was a professional dancer.
3: My mother, when she, as soon as she got married, was a professional housewife having children. So from the age of 12 till the age of 19, my mother was a professional dancer, um, which was possible back then. She She was went to ballet school. She auditioned for movies. She auditioned for stage plays. Her first stage review was under her um, stage name, Barbara Rowlandson. Um oh, No, it was under Barbara Cortland. That was her stage name. She was 12 years old, and that was her first newspaper review doing a vaudeville um, performance uh, with a young boy. And it would have been a, a kind of child, boy and girl, scene um, as part of the variety scene back then. So my mother was a touring artist from the age of 12 to 19. She met my father and immediately retired and my father was a joiner. His his father, my grandfather, was part of a a very huge construction company called Wilcox Lang and that was my grandfather.
0: And were you aware of your mother's theatrical roots? Was any of that rubbing off on you at this stage?
3: I was never encouraged to, to be a performer by either of my my parents. Uh, my mother talked about it, but it was very, very brief.
0: And you went to a private girls' school, and school wasn't really the best of days for you.
3: No, I should have been in a stage school. Uh, I, like many children, I just didn't fit into that particular system. I wasn't made for the three R's. Uh, I wasn't academic, but I was incredibly creative uh, and much more interested in being creative. Uh, My interests have always only been acting, singing and art. Uh, So I should have really gone to um, a drama school or a music school. I would have been much more productive in that kind of environment.
0: But you did go to the old Rep Drama School in Birmingham later.
3: Yeah, at the age of fourteen, very luckily a, a family friend was the um what he was the kind of head of Pebble Mill, BBC Pebble Mill. Mm. And he said to my parents, you are completely wasting this child's time. She needs to be in drama school. So he nominated me into the Birmingham Mulberry Theatre School, which I went to at weekends till I was 17. Then I went full time for a year and immediately got work um, at BBC Pebble Mill and then the National Theatre.
0: Now, you've always had a very distinctive look, and I think um, whilst maybe at school that might have been to your disadvantage, actually, your distinctive look and your style has been very much a part of what's made you so successful.
3: Yeah, I think I went be distinctive deliberately because i was very small child and certainly not a tall adult but i knew i had a lot to do and a lot to say and i had a lot of natural energy and performance is where i belong so i realized that um i was never going to be a sex symbol like sophia loren or um uh force it majors so I realized I just had to make my mark with individuality so I used it by making my own clothes I was a hair model uh, from the age of 14 and had very unusual haircuts and hair color and that got me noticed it worked for me
0: and in those days actually hair color like you had wasn't really the norm at all I mean it's sort of pretty more normal now it's mainstream now but wasn't then
3: it was considered completely outrageous then. Yeah. I, I was treated appallingly. And this was about 1974, 75. I, I wasn't allowed on buses.
0: You taxi- weren't allowed on buses?
3: No. Really? The bus would close the doors on me. How ridiculous. Um, I wasn't... The taxi drivers wouldn't pick me up. They thought there was something wrong with me. Uh, and people used to shout very impolitely. I won't say it on your show, but... If you can imagine the expletives, uh, who do you think you are? A clown? Are you completely mad? Um, What's wrong with you? I mean, just the most bizarre reactions.
0: Yeah. I mean, outrageous and appalling, but I guess, yeah, it may be different times. Thank goodness times have changed.
3: Very different times. I I think women and men can be who and what they want to be now, but back then, absolutely no way.
0: Not possible. You were ahead of your time, I guess, in many ways. But you signed to Safari Records, and that was a very important, pivotal moment for you.
3: Yeah. Well, we were really the last band in the punk movement to be signed. So it was quite worrying that By 1978-79, we hadn't been signed, and we were playing to 2,000 kids a night, so we were very lucky that Safari took us seriously and they signed us after a showcase, um, and none of us ever looked back after that point
0: the sheep farming in barnett ep has been re-released but let's move to four from toy which produced of course it's a mystery and that was the first time that i really came across you because this was playlisted on the radio stations up and down the country that's when you and i first met and did uh, this interview in 1980 it must have been amazing you had a top five hit with that um, four from toy ep
3: it was glorious it was everything i ever wanted up until this point i'd spent every Thursday of my life watching Top of the Pops with my family and on Christmas Day we had Christmas lunch so it finished in time to see Christmas Top of the Pops and suddenly there I was on this show and even though I had phenomenal success up until this point as an actress and a musician it wasn't till I was on Top of the Pops that my family realized I was a serious career musician. It, it was glorious. It was, it was an absolutely beautiful year.
0: That's the beautiful thing about families, isn't it? You're doing all this fantastic stuff and then the tradition is you eat your roast turkey or whatever and then you turn on Top of the Pops, you know, after the Queen or before yeah. the Queen and there's Toya on there singing her song they go, oh, my daughter's a proper pop star now.
3: It, it was absolute joy and that show was so powerful. It, you had to be on it. You just hadn't arrived unless you were on that show.
0: How did that change your life, having that big hit and obviously doing television, doing Top of the Pops?
3: Um, it changed my life uh, absolutely a hundred percent it my life was both glorious and and very scary i couldn't be driven down any road in the UK without seeing posters of myself in every shop window. Uh, My image greatly affected people in a positive way so I'd be driving down any high street and I'd be have posters in dry cleaners, posters in groceries, posters in newsagents. My image was everywhere so it meant that I was followed a lot But also the shows were very, very well attended. Every show was sold out. I had a very positive effect on people, uh, which was... I I was probably seen as the friendly punk rocker.
0: Yeah, you must have also loved the fact that people were coming to see you and they were liking you. Having had all that horrible negative feedback in the past, suddenly people go, wow, this girl's really cool and people are paying to come and see you.
3: Well, people always paid to come and see me, but I'd say that my punk days were very divided. Uh, I don't think Clash fans would ever come to see me or Sex Pistols fans would ever come to see me. But the thing about the huge success from 1981 onwards is I really found my dedicated hardcore general audience i mean audience from all walks of life up until this point i definitely had the toya barmy army that followed me everywhere in the punk days and defended me but suddenly in 81 my audience was very very broad and they've tended to stay with me these audiences now bring their children uh, to see me or they bring their uh, they had to the get grandparents to see me I mean I my audiences when I look out across the auditoriums now are very very broad and this was the moment that created that broadness
0: you mentioned the Sex Pistols there and I think it was suggested to you at some point you should see the Sex Pistols but you did in fact get some works for an association with John Lydon
3: I was approached by the director of Quadrophenia, Frank Rodham, to get John Lydon through the screen test for the leading in Quadrophenia. So I played the Leslie Ash role, and John Lydon played what was to become the Phil Daniels role. And I have to say he was a phenomenal actor, and I, I'm surprised he hasn't tried his hand at acting. He was a natural. Because he was in the Sex Pistols, investors wouldn't touch the film if he was in it, which was very unfair. But it did allow Phil Daniels to create the iconic role of Jimmy in Quadrophenia. And then I went on to have the role of Monkey in Quadrophenia.
0: Did you enjoy that? I mean, it's a great role.
3: Well, I mean, it's an actual, it's a pivotal film yeah. in the history of movies. Um, Frank Rodham directed it as a documentary. It's a groundbreaking movie with many brilliant performances in it, from Phil Daniels right through to uh, Phil Davies. I mean, you've just got the most amazing cast in that film. Uh, the, the future of film is in Quadrophenia. It, it was a nucleus. It was a beginning.
0: So, Toya, we've been talking about um, the Sex Pistols, talking about your acting and your music, Um, and let's just go back to Safari Records. The um, 4 from Toya EP was the start of a run of hit records for you.
3: Yeah, it was phenomenal. The very first uh, 4 from Toya was featured on a drama series called Shoestring with Trevor Eve and I mean what better advert can you get for your music than to have a whole of an EP used within a very brilliant drama episode in which I was playing a rock star in it. So from that moment on, we never look back. Uh, Extraordinary things happened, like ITV made an hour-long documentary about me that went out primetime on a Thursday, 9pm, called Toya, Toya, Toya. And it was one of the most glorious documentaries I've ever experienced. It featured all of my music, it featured my acting, and when they were making it, I was at the Royal Court working with Stephen Poliakoff and Nigel Williams. So they covered all this era in my life, which was hugely critically acclaimed. Uh, So it just launched me into the stratosphere.
0: And that title, Toya Toya Toya, was also, of course, the title of one of your live albums.
3: Yes. Well, that was made for the documentary. That was made for the
0: documentary, Uh, okay. It
3: it was shot live in a venue in Wolverhampton. So it's a live rock show, and that's going to be re-released as well. Uh, So, yeah, I remember that day because I was starving. I was so busy. The, The thing about being the main act and the main name of the main act is no matter how many people you have helping you everyone will ask you the questions first and I remember on that day I just needed to eat so badly before the show and the the line of people asking me questions meant that we shot that and I hadn't eaten for 24 hours and that's probably one of the negatives of being famous is people forget that you are a human being and you need nutrition i lost so much weight that year
0: you should have said to these people look please i need to go and have something to eat now but you didn't you carried on answering the it questions no which effect. is very very impressive but obviously not to your not to the good for you
3: it never had any effect oh, t- telling people what you needed had no effect right right i mean now there's two rules that i'll let you in on don't touch my pens and do not talk to me when i'm eating that's okay. absolutely I would never talk to an artist when they're eating because you know how little time they get to do that.
0: Great tips. And and Julie (laughs) Julie noted, um, in case we ever do anything at your house, don't touch your pens and don't interrupt you when you're eating. Um, The follow-up to four From Toya um, was I Want To Be Free. Now, um, this song, I guess, was to some extent autobiographical.
3: Oh, totally autobiographical. I'm severely dyslexic. And dyslexic is not something you can cure, but it has many benefits. I believe all dyslexics excel. Um, We excel, we have talents. We are the most incredible problem solvers because we have to learn to bluff our way through this present society. So I Wanna Be Free was very much saying, here I am stuck in the school system when I know I belong on stage and I'm not dumb. But the beautiful thing about this song, when it first came out, it was treated ever so slightly as a novelty song but 40 years on it's treated as a political song and I'm so passionate about this song I love singing it and two years ago it was used on stage at the Lyric Hammersmith in the stage version of Derek Jarman's Jubilee, in which I was in the movie playing Mad, but also in this stage version playing Queen Elizabeth I. And it was used as the encore song by a gender-neutral cast. And I have never been so proud as that moment.
0: Great to see now that gender-neutral is now really getting into the mainstream.
3: I can't take any of the credit because Chris Goode made the decision to have gender-neutral cast, and it was just so right. Derek Jarman would have just whooped with joy on hearing that and seeing this show. Very forward-thinking, and for me, a very steep and beautiful learning curve because I'm part of the generation where I go, come on guys, let's do this. You're a beautiful girl. You know, I am very gender specific when I talk and the cast didn't want any of that. They wanted neutrality, if that's the right word. They wanted to be them, they, even it and i found it very hard to refer to a human being as it because there's obvious connotations about that going back centuries of disrespect so i mean it was a very steep learning curve but there are people out there who prefer not to be recognized by gender and i was like that in the late 70s, early 80s, I preferred to be Toya the person rather than Toya the gender, because to be addressed as a woman um, 40 years ago also had hints of chauvinism. So I had complete sympathy for this cast and did everything possible to address their request to be gender-neutral but it kept slipping out. I come on, guys, let's go and have tea. And they were very kind and very tolerant towards me.
0: It's sort of come full circle now because if you talk to people who are in their twenties, I mean, the word "come and guys" is actually really used for, as a collective noun now, isn't it? It's Sort of, it is, it's yeah. almost acceptable now. I think the people you're talking to could be any gender, you know, any background. Come on, guys! It's just sort of a rallying call.
3: Well, yes, but this young generation, and let's throw light on the fact that this generation have never had it harder they've now got covid ruining their careers yeah. uh, as well as you know kind of lack of work etc cetera, etc cetera, and those in college having to pay for their education so this cast had every right to demand what they wanted to felt to feel respected so they had all of my sympathy it's It's a really tough time for this generation and I'm a constant learner and I think the beauty of life is you do constantly learn and life is very fluid, therefore why can't we be fluid as a race? So it's a fascinating time to be alive in but I think particularly for this younger generation, they need all the support they can get from us, an older generation who've had a lot of privilege.
0: Let's talk a bit about your theatre. You've been in about 40 plays. Are there particular moments which you think, yeah, that was just amazing?
3: Well, yeah, the serious stage plays. Uh, I've loved everything I've done from Therese Rakan at Nottingham Playhouse right through to working with Peter Schaefer on Amadeus, where he extended the role of um, Constanza Mozart's wife for me to play that in 1990, uh, right through to Jubilee with Chris Good. I'm immensely proud of all the theatre I've done. I spent 18 years in pantomime, and I approach pantomime the same way I approach Shakespeare. It's it's a show for the people. Uh, A lot of Shakespeare was developed for people to respond or to hold people's attention when there was a culture of going to theatre to meet your friends back then, rather than be silent and watch. So for me, the auditorium, the proscenium arch, the theatre in the round, it's just an absolutely sacred event. I really have loved every moment I've, I've spent on stage
0: you also starred with some big names. I mean, Laurence Olivier, for example, in The Ebony Tower.
3: Yeah, that was a TV film for Granada about 1983. Uh, Yeah, I mean, what can you say? I mean, thank goodness I got a chance to work with him. I worked with Catherine Hepburn as well in a TV film and Sir John Mills. And Diana Dawes. I mean, tell me when you're bored.
0: No, keep going. Uh, so, these are amazing names.
3: Yeah, this was the golden generation of stars. And I feel very lucky that I got to work with them.
0: Did you get to learn from them?
3: I think what I learnt most of all from them is ambition never dies. Ambition, the, the need to express yourself, the need to be continuing your art. You don't hit an age and put it on the shelf. All of these people were working right till the end and in love with their work. And that taught me that, you know, you treat every decade as if you have the right to work and that every decade counts.
0: And you've also done a huge amount of TV. I mean, and the TV is also as varied as your theatre, you know, from Watchdog Health Check, The Heaven and Earth Show, Songs of Praise, The Good Sex Guide. You couldn't get much more varied than that.
3: I know. I had a very phenomenal agent in the 90s, uh, what was called the Uber agent. And he managed people like Fern Britton, Jill Dando. And those two top names weren't always available for jobs, uh, because they were just booked out 24-7, which meant I got the top jobs they weren't available for. And I don't mind saying this because the same happens in acting. If Helen Mirrem isn't available, then the next big name is. And this is how the industry works. And it meant that I got a lot of real top-notch A-list work. I'm good at it. I'm still good at it. But I was not too proud to say yes to a job that I wasn't the first name to do. I think you will have seen many stories in the papers this week that Rodney in in Fools and Horses, the actor that got that wasn't the first name, he was the fifth on the list. And this is how the industry works.
0: And it's interesting, the people who weren't first actually are not necessarily the best either. Sometimes the second, third, fourth choice actually is the one that really clicks with the audience.
3: That's the message that counts, is the first choice isn't always right. I think parts belong to people and the part will find you. And in my case, that definitely happened.
0: Let's talk about um, your partner, because you are married to Robert Fripp from King Crimson. You married him, I think, in 1986.
3: Yes, we've been married for... Of 34 or 35 years. I can't quite put my finger on that number. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes. So what do you want to know?
0: Well, I mean, he is sort of the mainstay of King Crimson. I mean, he is the, he's the force that's kept King Crimson together. But you're doing things together. For example, I mean, on Facebook, on your Facebook page, you're offering personal video messages together.
3: Well, yeah, what we do, we do three broadcasts a week on Toya Official. Uh, so we do I do Toya at home on Saturday morning at 11 o'clock, which anyone can access. We do all of this for free. Then we do Agony Aunts at 6 o'clock, which is both Robert and myself. And then we do Toya and Robert's Sunday lunch at 12 noon on Sunday, which are all good, fun things to connect people, to let people know that That COVID is the great equaliser. We are all equal in this together. And our thoughts are that we want to put out positive messages where people can reach out, don't suffer in silence, reach out and talk. So, with the video messaging, you've got to keep in mind um, the political side of this is that live um live performers live technicians live venues have not had any any income for seven months so i think my company has taken 48 pounds in seven months so to do celeb messaging not only connects us with our fans it's actually helping us to pay the bills Um, we also do um, personalized art which is just hugely successful and that that's people kind of write in for their favorite um quote or favorite line of the lyric and i do line drawings so that's available as well um so all of this is us in lockdown and you have to remember robert and i are still in lockdown because of his vulnerability yeah um uh, surviving as artists so i we love doing this we absolutely adore the messages we get that we're requested to send to people i sent one yesterday to um, a young girl from latvia who flew to uh guernsey and had to isolate in a room for 14 days and uh, her family were concerned and they just asked me to reach out and connect to her so i, I sent a really I think, beautiful message, telling her about a song called Sensational. And, you know, you know the responsibility you have when you're doing this. This is not me going, oh, look at me, I'm a star. It's me saying, we are equal in this, we are connected, don't, don't suffer alone. So it's very, very powerful and emotive and very, very rewarding emotionally.
0: And I'm sure it helps lots of people. Will you carry on doing it once we're out of this? I mean, we don't quite know what the end date is. Will it stop once we're all back to normal?
3: I will definitely continue doing it because i'm not great on twitter where you've got to answer everything because my dyslexia is that bad but with doing the broadcasts and with doing celebrity messaging i can work how i work when i do celebrity messaging i, I do about 10 runs of each message so that i fully understand what they're asking me to do because sometimes i have to look at the written word again and again and again to get the sense. And that's dyslexia. So I can do that and I will keep doing that. Would I ever pick up Twitter and respond in the moment? No, because I don't understand everything I see. And when I learn a script... I read that script 130 times. That's how I learn it, and that's how I understand the sense. So I, I found a way of working in lockdown that is so precious to me that I would never have been able to learn if I wasn't in lockdown.
0: Listen, there's the third rule, maybe, Toye. Don't interrupt you when you're reading the script 130 times. That's really hard work. That's real dedication.
3: I'm totally dedicated to what I do. You are. Um, I think you'll find Judy Dench does the same.
0: That's why you're both successful. I mean, you're hard workers. As well as being good, you're very hard workers.
3: You have to, when you've got a film script in your hand, you have to open your mouth without thinking. And the process of reading that script 130 times is you could actually recite it backwards after you've done that. Right.
0: Right. Amazing. Amazing. Now, look, Robert Fripp, I mean, and your music are are very different. You have worked together. Uh, you have done music together. Will there be more collaborations of Toya and Robert Fripp together musically?
3: We had a band together in the late 80s called Sunday All Over the World. And that's being the album Kneeling at the Shrine is being remastered now. I'm on my solo album now my, with my co-writer Simon Darlow. And uh, that's called Posh Pop. Uh, Robert is playing on that but it doesn't mean it's a Robert Fripp collaboration or a Robert Fripp album and I have to be quite forceful about that because I put an awful lot into writing my music
0: Okay so he's playing on your album that's the the way it is Okay just quickly what's for the future what are you planning for the rest of this year and for next year?
3: Well, the solo album is going to take a good five months to complete. We want it out by um, April. So that is my number one priority. And then around that, I have been managing to make movies. So I've got three movies coming out. Um, One is called Heckler, which is part of Fright Fest, which you you can look up online. That's now going to be running as a streaming festival. It's a horror festival. And then I have Give Them Wings coming out. I have To Be Someone coming out and Swipe Right coming out. So uh, I have managed to keep the day job up.
0: It's a real pleasure to speak to you 40 years after the last time we spoke. Keep doing the fantastic work and thank you very, very much.
3: Paul, don't leave it another 40 years.
0: I promise not. My thanks to Toya and do check out her Facebook posts. They may just help you. And my thanks also to the wonderful Robert and Greg from Ocebisa. This has been the Private Lives Podcast from East London Radio. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Paul Robinson. Keep listening to Podcast Radio for more Private Lives very soon. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA Podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living. And every week, I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that,